I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is the time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles, and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we are getting gritty with some 70s horror classics, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes and Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We will be looking at cannibalism and horror and discussing humans as meat and the differences or lack thereof between us and other animals. So pick your poison, listen on, if you dare. So why did we choose these films, Jess? <laughs> uh, well, I think when people think about cannibalism, they think horror, people automatically think of these two films, The Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I feel like in the research that we've done over the last month, there's definitely huge reasons as to why people think cannibalism and they think these movies as kind of like the quiz essential part of that that genre like i also know that people also think about you know cannibal holocaust which is a film that i will never watch and i know kelly will never watch either but i think that's one of the reasons why we chose these films why about you kelly yeah so just like jess said we would never actually watch cannibal holocaust so that probably would have been a very obvious choice to do but since we will we refuse to watch it we didn't do that and then we were thinking about doing raw which i think is a fantastic cannibal movie with a lot of different things to say however you know a lot of different projects have you know tackled that movie it also is a pretty obvious choice Uh, but we've also talked a lot about it in different ways throughout the past year so we thought that we would we definitely wanted to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then we were like, let's just stick with the 70s. Let's go with, you know, some gritty, dirty 70s horror movies. And we picked our couple of classics. Yes. And especially, too, one of the parts of this podcast, too, is not only addressing uh, eating, um, a cannibalism is eating humans as me, but discussing our um, views on animal rights and horror and vegetarianism. And I feel both actually, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has some huge messages throughout its uh, the first film about this, about animal rights and the eating of animals. But also, too, there's actually a very similar element I noticed in The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, discussing animals as well. So I feel like that was also a really important element that we were going to be addressing in in this podcast. Definitely. So we're next going to get into a brief history of our own personal vegan journeys. So for myself, I've been vegetarian for over 20 years and vegan for the last 13. And That means that I was about 14 years old when I went vegetarian. You know, I was always an animal lover. You know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I didn't want to eat my cats. So, and I always loved animals. So it was kind of an easy decision for me to make when I was that young age. And then went to college for two years and slowly uh, went into full on veganism. Moved to Toronto became heavily involved in animal rights activism, but then eventually, you know, with combination of activism and learning everything that I've learned and working in the animal care field, I was full of compassion fatigue and definitely some burnout and was very disenchanted with uh, the work that I was doing. So I haven't done full on activism in a good, good number of years. 
and probably am misanthropic now and <laughs> you know with everything that I know that happens in this world but uh, it's still it's still very important to me and a part of my identity definitely you know I think was an influence for a lot of people to to change their lifestyles and I think Jess was one of them uh, yeah, I 100% agree. So my journey has been interesting because when I was in high school, I tried to go vegetarian twice and I was not received very well by my family, nor did I receive any support. Whenever I wanted to go vegetarian, it was all of a sudden there was no vegetables in the house. So apparently, you know, farming family, you live off of meat and potatoes. So that was a, that was a struggle for me. And then I, over the years, would try and have more of a um, more like less me especially like when I went off to university I really hated fucking cooking like hated cooking so much and ate meat less and less and less but on the same time too though I was also getting to know Kelly really well and being involved in more in her life like whenever I go visit her she would always introduce me to you know vegetarian uh, food and restaurants and I was like always so I was always exposed to how there was this better and more like ethical way of eating and I know I have, uh, I've joined Kelly, I think, on one um, fur rights demo in my lifetime. I, I've never done, I've never done the, like, the activism route myself. I think I did it once, and then I was like, okay, this is enough for me. I'm not that controversial type of person, or um, I don't, I, I, I tend to avoid conflict. But one of the things was that I remember being educated by Kelly throughout my journeys, and I remember going, when I first got married, I went like vegetarian for a month, and then my ex-husband at the time was like, I bet you in one month we're gonna go full vegan. And, but sure enough, that happened. I was vegetarian for one month, watched a video, more videos, and I was educating myself, and I was just like, nope, I can't do this. I need to go 100% and change my life, and that's what I did. I went for the animals. I went 100% vegan, changed my lifestyle, changed how I ate, and interesting enough, I also discovered I love cooking and was actually pretty good at it. <laughs> and I really enjoy and I love my vegan lifestyle. And over the years, you know, I've stayed vegan because of uh, largely for animal rights, but over time, it's been for health, environmental, spiritual reasons. And so, yeah, I've been vegetarian. I've been vegan for 10 years now. So woot, woot. That is my journey. <laughs> <laughs> so we did two Twitter polls. The first one was how many of our followers are vegans or consider themselves plant-based? And 26% said yes. 54% nice. said no. And 20% said they were veg curious. So the vast majority of our supporters and fans and followers are not plant-based. So I hope everybody likes this episode. They learned something from it and maybe starts a dialogue and discussion happening. But that was not really a surprising result to me. No, I actually think it's an interesting result in the sense that like when you add the yes and veg curious, you've got about 46%. So it's kind of like half and half almost mm -hmm, like, like, right. so I was actually pretty impressed and surprised with that result. So that's good. I'm happy. I'm happy with it too. So the first film we're going to talk about and get into is The Hills Have Eyes. They were something different, but something different saw them first. The Hills Have Eyes. Mister, don't take your family back in that area. The silver has been gone for 40 years now. Besides, there's nothing back in there but animals. A lot. The old creep told you not to get off the road. What began as a vacation ended as a nightmare. Be hell to pay now. 
family's refusal to die. I'm gonna get those animals. The Hills Have Eyes. A night of terror. A day of vengeance where no one was spared. No one. Kill the babe! Kill me! They fought back. Anything was a weapon. The family dog to the family car. It's working! The Hills Have Eyes, the most shocking, terrifying film you will ever see by Wes Craven, writer and director of The Last House on the Left. The Hills Have Eyes, the lucky ones died first. Kelly, when did you first get introduced to this film? I couldn't tell you. That's often the story because it's been so many years. Uh, I just saw it, and I've seen it multiple times over the last many years. Um, I love Wes Craven, so I always enjoy seeing movies from him. Not a huge, colorful, exciting story. I just, like a lot of movies, I've seen them sporadically throughout my 25 years of watching horror movies. Uh, Yeah, how about you? It was brand spanking new for the podcast. Like, I've heard about oh. it, I read about it, but I had never watched it. And so I watched it for the first time. It was interesting, too. I'm glad I read a little bit of a synopsis about this type of this film before I actually watched it because the source where I was watching it from, they had the original poster up, but when you clicked on it, it was actually the, the remake. So I was like, oh. beginning the film, and I was like, huh, this is like really gritty and really well done for a 1970s horror film and then it starts out with like the guys and like the whole body suits and I'm like oh no this is not what this is not 1970s gritty horror and I was like this was the remake so I quickly shut that off was able to find the right copy and then got into it I was like this makes more sense oh my god uh I highly do recommend the remake I actually like the remake more than the original so. And I've heard, I've heard that. I've heard people say they really <laughs> like it. I guess the more radioactive element and mutated element is is highly more present in the remake yeah. than in the seventies yeah, version. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, what did you like about it? Since it was your first watch. Oh gosh, I wasn't really a huge fan of it, which is interesting because in my re- like research, one of the articles I read were like, oh, this is like one of the well like known classic cult classes of Wes Craven, and I was just like, mm-hmm. it's okay. Like I'm, I, 
I like the grittiness. I, I love grittiness about 1970s horror films. I just have that feeling that gets me in. And we all know Jessica loves atmosphere. So if I can get into a film that has really good atmosphere and makes me feel like that, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling dirty and, and feeling like that salt sand and all the grossness of being out in the desert. Because, you know, being out in the desert is disgusting. Why would anyone want to be there? And I really enjoyed that element of it. I really enjoyed the story of Beauty and the Beast, the two dogs. Oh. Uh, even though it was, like, sad, but it was also, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll touch upon this later, but it brings kind of that idea of uh, animals and horror and kind of animal rights. But, yeah, I just... The film wasn't that memorable to me. I... And... Yeah, yeah so, like, when I finished it, and also, like, and I'll, I'll probably just combine my dislike, mm-hmm. the ending, I just didn't like how it just ended. Because then I was just like, oh, it just ends? So they're all going to die in the desert? What was the point of fighting these people then? I don't get it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I also find it a bit forgettable. And part of me feels so bad for that. Sorry, Wes Craven. But yeah, I'm not... That's why I like the remake more. There's just some... It's just a, a bigger, I think, better built story. I also haven't seen that one in a while, but I just remember it being more more memorable anyways. Um, but I do like the overall premise. I do like how it's, you know, it's dark and it's, you're like, you keep saying gritty, but, you know, you got that kind of atmosphere to it. Dee Wallace is in it. Lovely, That's lovely true. Dee Wallace. <laughs> so Horror royalty. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So overall, I do like the, the definitely the story of it. Uh, disliking. You're right. I forgot about that very abrupt ending. I don't normally like abrupt endings. I like things to kind of wrap up, whether it's going to be a happy ending or a bleak ending, whatever, as long as it's, you know, kind of a compact, together, concise ending. I thought the pacing was a little off. It's not, it's kind of slow at parts. Um, I didn't really care for the dog element of it, only because maybe it's just the vet tech out of me coming through. But the dogs are not well-behaved and they're not well-trained. And why would you take your dogs on this cross-country trip and just let them, like, off a leash at all in the middle of the desert? (laughs) Which I agree, like, 100%. Being like, I don't understand why you would do this. But I think in terms of promoting um, the sentience of animals, of beings. I think it was an interesting tale in the sense that you have uh, Beast who goes after and takes revenge for mm-hmm. Beauty's death. And I was like, okay, like, they, animals are smart. They sense pain. <laughs> they feel they, they feel danger. Yes. They're, you know, they're, they're, smarter, they're smarter than these people. Like, legit <laughs> smarter than <laughs> these humans. Be. I think perhaps there's some anthropomorphizing there and that they seek revenge. I don't know if animals can actually feel the sense of revenge, but the dog definitely did help them out in some of those darker, darker moments. So I hope that they were... The dog is a true hero. The the dogs are the true heroes. He's just a true hero, yeah. And then my partner said, I'm like, well, they're... The the dads, you know, who's a retired cop, like, they're his police dogs. I'm like, that was the truth. Those animals are goddamn well-trained. They would not act this way. So I was annoyed by that. Um, And the other thing is that the cannibal's fashion sense... (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why is he wearing, like, a little crop top? I don't know what's happening here. I just thought it was just, like, too much. I would 
can understand uh, like wearing furs and the skins of animals, but they just looked too high fashion, too couture for my liking. <laughs> <laughs> there, so I almost want to think I'm like the episode, the season of uh, RuPaul's Dry Race season four when they do like apocalyptic or something yep. like that. They're they're inspired by <laughs> the hills that buy. Oh my god! When I think of some of the drag queens are wearing, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Exactly. Um, but it's also interesting too, though, and I I remember writing this in my notes and got really confused. I thought Papa Jupiter was the, was like, you know, on the main page, like the main cover of the film is like the bald guy yep. with like the big John eyes Berryman. and nose. Yep. I caught, I thought he was the main like lead. I thought he was Papa Jupiter. Right. And to end up finding out that he was just like one of the sons kind of, and like was kind of disappointing. Right. I was just like, oh, you're, so you're really not the main bad. No, <laughs> no, he's definitely not, which is too bad. Cause you know, you, he's on the cover. Everybody knows him from that movie, but his role is yeah. sadly very small. And his death is comical. Yes. Like, it's kind of like... It's... Yeah. It's kind of silly. <laughs> this leads us into uh, introducing us into a, a subgenre of horror, which is cannibals and cannibalism. And why eat humans and why not eat humans? So, to start this off, we kind of like wanted to find what a cannibal is. So, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a cannibal is one that eats the flesh of its own kind. And so the word cannibal itself is actually the origin of it comes from the Spanish word can, cannibal, um, meaning savage. And it was actually mispronunciation by explorers of the Carib tribe in Cuba and Haiti in, Haiti in the 1400s because they called them canibs. And, and this was a tribe that was known to practice the ritual of cannibalism. So typically cannibalism is what distinguishes humans from animals is the ability to restrict oneself from indulging in the act of consuming another human. Hence why we see them as acts of cannibalism in films, we see that the one is committing an act of, of animal or savagery. So also on Twitter, uh, we had put out a poll on asking our followers, would you eat human flesh? And this is actually surprisingly close, these results. Forty-nine <laughs> percent uh, <laughs> of people said yes, while 51 percent of people said no. I know I was one of the people who voted no because I, as I said, I would probably be one of the people being eaten. <laughs> I just don't <laughs> I just don't have it in me. <laughs> so I don't remember if I voted, but anyways, I would have said yes. <laughs> but, you know, when you come from things from really like a vegan point of view, no flesh is edible. So it's... Yes. But like if it came down to it, if it was like an alive situation, I remember seeing that movie Alive uh, many, many years ago as a kid. I'm like, I would have had no problems eating those people to survive. So I would eat human flesh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would probably be your meal. <laughs> I'm eating your butt first. <laughs> Lisa, yeah, exactly. There you go, Kelly. I will I will die for you to live. Amazing. How's that for our friendship? <laughs> that is... That's, that's, the show is a very strong dynamic, so thank you. <laughs> exactly. So... Cannibalism on the screen. So cannibalistic tendencies in film tend to creep in like an addiction. And we see that as is a recent trend um, from, of cannibals on the screen going from cannibalism as an affliction of the mind with humans uh, wrestling with this all-consuming desiring to do something that is completely revolting. Whereas in the beginning when we saw, and this is like a more recent trend that we're seeing with uh, cannibalism on films, whereas in the 1970s and 80s, it was something of a fixture of exploitation and trashy cinema with the focus of cannibals being either savages or dirty hillbillies. When 
we look um, at uh, psychology. Um, one of the things that when I was doing my research was looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is the motivational theory in psychology, which is a five-tier model of human needs. So this is comprised of five elements. So self-fulfillment needs uh, are top of this triangle where you have self-actualization, achieving one's potential, full potential. You have psychological needs, which are in the middle of the triangle, which is our esteem needs, so feeling of accomplishment and belongingness and love needs, intimate relationships. And then you have your basic needs, which are at the very base of the triangle, which are safety and security, physiological needs, which is food, water, warmth, and rest. And in this series, Maslow describes that the need for food will always trump the need to live with your, with, with yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. for humans to be able to, so if these needs are not satisfied, the human body cannot function optimally. So Maslow considers physiological needs the most important as all other needs become secondary until these needs are met. So if you do not have food and water and your body's not able to rest, you cannot even think properly. You cannot even imagine yourself a self-fulfilling prophecy or being able to have intimate relationships with other people because you need to fucking eat. And sometimes when it comes down to it, if you're in a survival situation and you may need to eat the person next to you to survive, that's... That basic needs trumps all other, especially even that moralistic sense of self. In recent film trends that we're seeing, we see uh, the portrayal of cannibals as more morally ambiguous subjects instead of crazed, flesh-craving antagonists. And this can be seen through the character of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, where this changed the landscape for cannibalism and horror. We show that even the most sophisticated members of the upper class are willing to eat the flesh of others. Mm-hmm. And then also, too, like I, Kelly had discussed earlier, the film Raw, uh, part of the new, uh, new French extremity. We see that uh, just, uh, Justine is forced to be at the mercy of her own body and forced to not feel guilty for her actions. And it is more of a mix of obsessiveness, the need to taste blood accompanying her brushes with her sexual maturity, a cautionary feminist tale about an adolescent urge stubbornly refusing to adhere to reason. It's also a tale of vegetarianism, which we'll discuss further on later on the podcast. But in the 1970s, 80s, cannibals were crazy people. They were crazy. They were the things you needed to fight against. Yeah. They were not this morally ambiguous character or the ha- or these this idea of like your whole world is being changed by this this uh, craving for flesh. Mm-hmm. So historically, one of the forms of cannibalism was eating of your enemy. So historically, the idea of eating your enemy is to perform an extreme form of physical dominance. So in regard to cannibalism, it is far from just being senseless violence as seen as more tribal cannibalism. So tri- earlier tribes, uh, tribal people who practiced consensual cannibalism was a part of ritual. And this was actually tended to be part of their mourning and burial. And it was seen as a duty to be able to honor the body that has passed on. On the island of Fiji, cannibalism in the 19th century was a religious motivation of consumption of an enemy. It was believed that the spirit of the dead person remained with a person for four days, and that by eating that corpse, it prevented it from ascending to the spirit world and becoming a source of power. In tribes, acts of cannibalism can be seen as a notion of honor and respect. The courageous victim is worth eating for the survival of the tribe. However, while Christian Europeans, they shunned cannibalism when they came to the New World, and they saw themselves, but at the same time too, while they're shunning uh, tribal cannibalism, this idea of ritualized cannibalism, we were technically using forms of cannibalism by using human fat, flesh, bone, and blood in a lot of early forms of medicine. Mm. 
And also, too, there is actually some extreme military uses of cannibalism and ideas, uh, in particular, like warrior strategies, where situations of eating or removal of an organ of another human being was seen as extreme acts of hatred towards a class, a family, or an enemy, which is also seen as a manner of disrespect towards the victim and what they represent by mutilating their body and ingesting it. What does cannibalism do to your body? Mm. Well, throughout history, cannibalism has been used as situations where it's a choice between life or death. Either you're a stranded camper or a prisoner of war or other extreme events or ritualistic uh, tribes or... Maybe you just want to eat people. <laughs> you just want to eat... Yeah, you just want to eat people. Just enjoy it. However, when you eat other people, not only are you faced with social repercussions, <laughs> but also what they call Puron diseases. So, purons uh, each start life as a protein with no nu nucleic acid genome. With these proteins, they come into contact with other proteins and then they bond with them and they start changing them into zombie style. Soon enough, you have an army of malformed proteins shambling through your body, changing as many as your formerly healthy building blocks as they can into members of the horde, <laughs> breaking you down from the inside. What ends up happening is this leads to brain deterioration, loss of motor control, and then eventual death. This is why the betrayal of cannibals are always looking half crazed in horror movies and they're looking like the living dead because they literally are. <laughs> the, uh, it's great that you bring that up because uh, I think it's pre a prion disease. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it, uh, it's talked about and shown, I think, really, really well in my monthly pick, which was We Are What We Are, because Ooh. the father in that family, since he's older than um, the daughters and, and the son that they, he has, he shows those types of signs, more of the like loss of motor control, there's a lot of like hand shaking and stuff like that that he does, and that's one of the signs that leads the local doctor to look into kind of the whole family history and everything oh, like that when they, okay. when they touch on prion disease. So that's, a again, another plug for that really wonderful, uh, surprising cannibal-based uh, movie. Yeah, for sure. Also, mad cow disease. Yeah, So true. mad cow yep. disease was brought on by feeding cows other cows. Ugh. We're not meant to eat large quantities of our own species. No. So shit can happen. It's inappropriate. However, things in moderation, that's something that probably hasn't been researched. <laughs> <laughs> if you eat one human finger, I, like a week or something like that, you're okay. Yeah, probably fine. <laughs> We're not condoning cannibalism. No. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> so I read this really great article called Cannibalism, Vegetarianism, and Narcissism. So it touches on cannibalism. So there are two types of cannibalism. There's active and passive. The active type of cannibalism is actually where you kill people to eat them. So it's essentially you're, you murder them to eat them. And the passive form of cannibalism is eating humans after they have died of natural causes. And this is often illegal because we're misusing the corpse. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to dismember and, you know, eat a human corpse that is seen as a social no-no. And then just it being against the law. But both active and passive types of cannibalism make people very uncomfortable and disgusted. And some people, when faced with, you know, either starve or you resort to cannibalism, will choose to die. Because they just cannot get past and accept you know, the fact that they are eating human beings. 
and some will fight off eating them until they have suffered greatly and then succumb to finally eating them. Again, bringing up that movie alive, you know, it's a great movie and they go definitely into that. But we don't have this against other species, but we do like to pick and choose who we will eat. And it seems, though, the human corpse is much more valuable than a living animal. The desecration of a human corpse that feels absolutely nothing is worse in our minds than the suffering and death of an actual living, breathing animal. And, you know, people's choices to eat or not eat animals comes down to morals, ethics, and philosophy well beyond the scope of this podcast, but there's a lot of good material out there to read. You know, why does a person have the right to, you know, have a right to life and a cow does not have a right to life? You know, besides the health aspects of regularly consuming vast amounts of human flesh, why are we so opposed to passive cannibalism, at least? You know, if they've died of natural causes, that could be used to feed other people. You know, maybe other people that can't really afford to buy a lot of food themselves. Mm -hmm. And why are we opposed to that? And why are we not outraged at the slaughter of millions of animals for food? Humans have very strong food prejudices and our stomachs triumph over our rational minds and our rational thoughts. And some of that leads down to speciesism, which I won't get into. I think folks should research that on their own. A woman named Deborah Bird Rose wrote a book, Wild Dog Dreaming, and she said that in Western philosophy, we are dedicated to finding ways to avoid noticing the death of animals, and this is central to our human identity. Mm. Cannibalism brings attention to the death of humans as animals, and this disregard is crucial to our identities. We often forget that we are animals ourselves, and we think of humans as above all other nature, animals, everything, that we are top of this food chain while still thinking that we aren't actually a part of it. It's like this weird mishmash of ideas, like we're a part of nature, but we're not a part of nature, you know, dominion, quote unquote, and such. Mm. We disempower and marginalize other species and sometimes other humans. And that's, you know, there's been some cannibalism in our history where we thought it was fine because though they were quote unquote lower humans than us. But we base so much of all of this on our de- on the denial of our animality, our desire to maintain our hierarchical position in our, you know, in nature, in the food chain. And we continue to deny our materiality because, you know, we live, we're living, breathing and dying animals and our animality. Cannibals treat humans as animals, how humans actually treat other animals for food. And that makes us very uncomfortable. Yeah. There's the theory of anomy by French sociologist Emile Durkheim. This is the breakdown of normative values and relations, usually brought on by economic changes. In cannibal films, we're, we can see this as a breakdown of social order, the savages, the barbarism, and stuff like that. And this can be a metaphor for the loss of identity and community due to social change and economic disadvantage. The humans turn savage. So now we're going to look into more of The Hills of Eyes specifically. So this film is supposedly, in quotation marks, based on the true story of the Swanee Bean Cave Clan. So this was a story from the 15th century of Swanee. He was the son of a landscaper who headed for a coastal cave in Brianna Head, Scotland, with his wife and family of eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons, and 14 granddaughters, all mostly the product of incest. 
They apparently lived in the caves where they would ambush travelers and they would rob and murder them. The bodies were then taken back, dismembered, and eaten. This was this had apparently continued in secret for 25 years. However, on when wow. on one day an attack went wrong, and one of the men had fought back and he escaped. He reported the incident to King James the Sixth of Scotland, who then dispatched his soldiers. The beings were then all discovered along with the evidence of the crimes and then taken back to Edinburgh, where they were sentenced to death. The men were castrated and feet severed, slowly dying of blood loss, while the women and children were burned alive. Now, there is a debate that this may be a myth. However, it is known that during the famines of the 15th century, many people were forced to result to cannibalism to survive. And just as Kelly said, and typically these were, like as uh, Kelly has already mentioned, people of lower class, lower income. They didn't have the ability to either farm or to be able to survive without having to fend for themselves. And, and sometimes, a lot of times, eating of another person was that of anyone who is of the weaker of their family. Completely. And that's kind of like... Go, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, like you said, completely. It, typically, the weaker of the family or would have been the, the uh, burden to the family to keep them alive. And that comes back to our... Probably a lot of that was passive cannibalism. People were maybe starving to death or, you know, they were weak, so they were getting sick and then dying. Eating a... A sick body probably isn't the best thing, but again, if you're kind of that forced survivalism of of cannibalism, and if that's all that you kind of have around you, then I mean, we all have to we have that strong survival instinct, right? So, if if you got to do it, you got to do it. Exactly, and especially like whenever we think of famines, we also think like when there's a famine, there's typically a lot of diseases running rampant. So it also make you wonder like if people are actually eating the uh, the bodies of the sick and the dying, then it would make sense that all these diseases are spreading uh, around the world. But mm-hmm. that's like just a that's just a theory. I don't know if it turn <laughs> up, but it makes sense. So despite this being real or not, it was actually great source material for Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, especially because it is a film that is considered one of the richest and best executed films of career of a state. Now, this is not how I feel, but this is how an author felt when I read their research. And the film, just what it does is it establishes a face-off between the Christian middle class, a suburban family against primitive scavengers, a cannibalistic gorillas that represent the oppressed, the embattled, and the downtrodden minorities and social and ethnic groups. I would also say that I disagree with the fact that it's the richest, best executed film of his career to date. But what do I know? What do I know? I'm not a film critic. (laughs) Exactly, right? But it is a really interesting movie, and I think he pretty much always has really interesting, well-thought-out movies. So thank you, writer who thinks it's the best. (laughs) So in this movie, you don't actually see them eat any people. We know for sure they eat the dog. That's great. We know that. So they'll eat dogs. So a lot of the cannibalism is implied. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do know the circumstances that led to them to become cannibals, again, for survival. You know, but when you look at it, you know, and all these different types of, you know, cannibal films and circumstances of survival, us in our first world countries, just living in Ottawa, me in downtown Toronto, we don't have to struggle to survive. Um, so we don't have to eat humans, but we also don't have to eat animals. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, we see that these people were uh, kind of forced into doing that, but we don't actually have to ourselves. What 
I like about the, this movie is the juxtaposition of that sweet white bread white family yeah. and the brutal, harsh, rough and tumble, though high couture, uh, cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> the Carters are represented as like the family that's quote unquote normal. And the the folks in the hills are the barbaric, not civilized ones living on the fringes, you know, of society. But then we see them as being barbaric for how they treat people whom they eat. But we as, you know, people that, if people eat meat, not we, Jess and I, um, but we as a collective society pay people to brutalize our food, which are animals. So, you know, kind of what's worse? At least cannibals are honest. That's my thought. <laughs> At least they're honest. Like, yeah, I eat people and this yeah. is what they do. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I kind of liked that about the movie for sure. That kind of like dichotomy of like, well, they're savage and barbaric, but here's these people and they want to live like quote unquote normal lives and eat normal food. Yeah. Um, which is just dead animals. Yeah. And humans are animals. So Wes Craven had said, and this is a quote from him about the Hells Have Eyes, I also wanted people to confront this basic xenophobia by showing that a group of seemingly reprehensible people can be like anyone else in one's experience of so-called normal, everyday, middle-class life. Papa Jupiter has his own wife and sons. Their behavior is not at all different from the behavior of Carter and his sons, although Jupiter is seen as the first aggressor. But they're just, they're, you know, they're both families living their the lives that they need to to protect their families and get their food and do what needs to be done. So when people talk about The Hills of Eyes, they talk about this film as exploitation done right. So I thought this was a really interesting <laughs> idea. <laughs> I love that- all the, like, non-sploitation, exploitation. <laughs> I love that. I need to watch more of these movies. Yeah, exactly, right? So The Hills of Eyes is definitely, as Kelly was explaining earlier, it's uh, it's a film about a road trip that's gone wrong. So we have, we're exploiting middle-class fears about the lower-class uh, white people in the American heartland. So what we see is the extent of the, the Carter family's ideological, inherent arrogance, repression, and the absolute denial of their situation. What makes them prime targets for victimization by Papa Jupiter's ruthless and unscrupulous family. It's very reminiscent, this film, of the 1950s and 60s post-war fears of government-sponsored scientific horror. Because um, we see this family driving through an isolated military zone, which apparently has had nuclear testing done. We don't really see any evidence of like nuclear testing. We know there's a military base. We hear uh, planes flying over. We know that they find a military base and they, got a, they get some supplies we also know that Papa Jupiter's family is using a lot of those supplies and have killed a lot of soldiers on this base. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's that element to it of that military, but it's not as, uh, we don't really, the idea of radiation is not that apparent, but because it's still kind of, is implying that the hillbillies have been impacted by radiation, and that's why they're crazy, and this is why they're killing and eating people, why they want the flesh mm-hmm. of the fresh baby, which, anyway. Um, <laughs> so that what's doing is, is tending to exploit the fear of the atomic bomb and showing uh, how war and nuclear heads and what they can do to the body. So we have this like really nice like mythic tale about a nice family, you know, we've got, you know, representing America and they're driving through, they're, you know, like going cross country with their dogs and their kids and their families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's a cop, he's representative of the authority and they're driving to go to this land, to to this mine to find that they have been inherited. 
did. And, you know, and they're also celebrating an anniversary, which is a very, you know, ideal. Um, but it all definitely is like representation like a, of heteronormativity for yes, sure. Just like it, everything is normal and these people are good. Exactly, right? And that, oh, they just, they happened to make the wrong turn and they left the highway. And so, you know, there's all men, it's like, it's all manifest destiny. Like they're just, they're traveling to go to the, get their riches. But what we see is that this, under this, underneath this thin veneer of respectability, there is also this savagery. And we see, as we're watching the film, this veneer of respectability slowly being deteriorated away as they're being attacked by what they believe are savages in this abandoned military zone. And it's kind of like representative of what the Americans, our first Americans did to inhabitants and the Native Americans who had lived in the hills when they were first like colonization, when they first came into um, America. What I thought was really interesting, especially when they talk about this whole thin veneer of respectability and also this idea of denial that as we see the family, you know, they just, they're in this situation. The car is broken down. They're not really trying. I like. I feel like they weren't really trying to do too much to try and fix the vehicle. Like, no, they're just like, well, they're like, we'll just camp out here for a while. Let's make dinner. Right, right. Like, oh, yeah. an axle broke. I'm like, oh, we'll figure something out to like get this get this working. So I'm like, oh no, we're gonna separate and go two different ways. Yeah. One one way, one the other way, and then we'll come back. And then we're we're gonna have like a little bit of barbecue. We're just gonna chill out here in the middle of the fucking desert. Oh, Oh my yeah. god like i'd be like losing my shit like we're gonna die out here but you know as things start to happen you're seeing like they're praying they're acting like nothing's really wrong and then when the husband the father gets killed bob the mother goes into like, complete denial like that whole scene where he's like been crucified she's like that's not my husband that's not my like they're in disbelief that this is happening that this could happen to them mm-hmm. and then we see eventually you know and this is what makes them like prime victims to papa john to papa jupiter and his family because they're just like well this this is easy pickings like these people are idiots they don't know what's going on mm-hmm. you know and the as because the carter family just like this can't really be happening people can't really be doing this to us and it's not until we see like the rape of the daughter uh the murder of d wallace's character who's the sister in cold blood the kidnapping of the baby mm-hmm. that we finally find the uh brother-in-law the brother and the daughter really just all of a sudden like realize that they're not going to find strength within themselves unless they get down to their enemies level of rage and by doing what needs to get done to protect themselves and get to that level of savagery that they need to get to get the baby back and to survive so it's really interesting that the film at the end of the day is implying that even the most westernized individual is no different than the savage that's out in the hills picking them off and trying to kill their family amen sister (laughs) (laughs) what i also i'm just remembering from the movie was so it's beauty that dies first. The, yes. The first die. Right. right. So the son takes all day to tell I anyone know. that she died. Right? Why why is that a secret that you must keep to yourself? And then he never really answers to that when somebody asks, like, oh, well, when did that happen? Or like earlier today. And he's upset. Obviously, it's a very upsetting yeah. thing, but why didn't you tell anyone? That was like the first sign of like something is out there, but I'm not really sure why he wouldn't have 
told anyone? Did he want to just try to take it upon himself to help save the family? Because that's what men are supposed to do. Yeah, that completely blew my mind, especially because, like, the dogs are freaking out and acting weird. So it's not only just, like, if if there's people out there that's going to pick off and kill your family, like, other types of other threatening situations could be happening. And the animals are, like, alerting you to danger. And people are just Mm -hmm. like, nope. We yeah. we're good. It could be Nothing. some wild animals that are not quote unquote savaged humans, but actual yeah. um, like feral wild animals out there doing something. Think everybody should have been alerted that something was going on. Also, I'm sure they would want to want to know that the dog had been killed. Yeah. Jeez. Well, it's just like that idea of just like because we are because we're in America, like that whole quote, like you know we're in America, you can't get lost in America or something like that. Like yeah. we're in America and we're Americans, we're civilized. Nothing could happen to us out here. Yeah. We're good. Like so, kind of touching a bit on that, cannibalism can represent possessiveness, which is what Robin Wood stated in his uh, article, "Return of the Repressed." And he said that possessiveness is that it's under capitalism, which I'm sure that is true. Mm. But in this circumstance, I would say that we have, it's like this possessiveness over the planet. Humans strive to be in control of everything. Everything we do, what we drive, what we consume, what we do for entertainment. We want to, you know, have marriage, which might be an element of control in there as well. Like we just want to say in everything and we just try to dominate over the planet do we have to talk about what's happening in the amazon right now the meat industry is hugely corrupt but yep. yeah. you know vegans have been trying to say that for probably 30 plus years now and nobody listened and i think people are sadly listening now yeah and that's just better late than never i guess i don't know it's been angering me very much this last couple of weeks Mm-hmm. So the quote-unquote monstrous cruelties of the Sawyer family, which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, has a reflection in the normality of the bunch of kids in that movie, but in the Hills of Eyes, things are a bit more fleshed out. The family in the Hills want to rape, murder, and eat the Carters, and like I said, the Carters want to eat normal food, like animals and vegetables, but they also want to have families and do all those types of normal things. So I guess, like we were saying before, it's all a matter of perception. Mm-hmm. Um, we They think it's normal to brutalize and kill humans along with other animals, because of course they eat other animals as well. And we think we wouldn't admit this, because we hate to admit this, but we pay for people to brutalize animals so that we can eat them. But overall, for both families, We need to nourish our families, we need to sustain ourselves and them and take care of them, and cannibalism is the means for this family to do it. Uh, So another Craven quote, Wes Craven, RIP, he said, there's a peculiar thing about cannibalism. Obviously it's one of the last taboos, but there's also something intellectually very appealing about it, and that it's absolutely direct, an honest way of going about the idea of killing someone else. It goes directly against the tradition of portraying violence in an antiseptic way. Even on the news, there is a basic tendency to show people being put into plastic body bags and sort of carefully tucked away on a shelf somewhere, as if the bloodshed never happened. Cannibalism is much more direct. The cannibal takes the other person's strength, the person's vital fluids. It's symbolic, but it also strikes a chord about the nature of violence. The person's essence is being taken. It's a good opposite, not just the way violence is portrayed in movies, but to the whole notion of how we quote-unquote knock somebody off, even in a business sense. Cannibalism tends to expose the casual aspect of it all, right? Going back to the materiality, the animality of human beings. 
Mm, yes. And what's also really interesting, you're bringing up a point there is Papa Jupiter's uh, whole speech at one point when he's, uh, I think he was killing or Bob or crucifying him. And he's just like, how dare they come into my area and they push their, their way of life into my face. And that whole like, I'm not going to have any of this. You're not better than me. I'm mm-hmm. going to eat you. <laughs> Like, yes, yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I I remember that it was a really great, great kind of paragraph that he had. It uh, yeah, it says a lot, you know, coming mm-hmm. in and telling people what they can and cannot do, and without questioning everything that you are doing, yeah. which is essentially on par. We just pay other people to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So we have a guest appearance or a guest spot this podcast episode. And so we have Ash from the Horror Vanguard. So Ash is a writer, academic, and media critic from the American Midwest. You can find him on Twitter at underscore Ash with four H's and over at his podcast, The Horror Vanguard. So let's listen on his take of vegetarianism, cannibalism, and horror. Hello everyone, I'm Ash of the Horror Vanguard, a podcast about politics, philosophy, and horror movies. And here's a little tale of terror just for you. Oh, I didn't see you there. I was just busy butchering this... meat. Well... Since you were nice enough to so unexpectedly stop by, we might as well talk for a minute. Here, take a seat in this chair. Do you watch any horror movies? Me? I love them. Can't get enough. Especially the cannibal ones. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Deathline, Delicatessen, Raw. You know, come to think about it, these movies have something in common. It's how they force us to get to know our meat. We're used to seeing meat as just a product. Shanks, chuck, trotters, those clean, sterilized terms for parts of an animal, when really they're legs, ground shoulder, and feet. We've come to fetishize meat as a commodity, and have forgotten entirely where it comes from. Cannibalism in horror movies reunites us with the screaming, bloody origins of our meat. You know, animals aren't so different from people. We have shanks, ribs, and trotters. As philosopher Murray Bookchin wrote, The notion that a man must dominate nature emerges directly from the domination of man by man. The way we treat animals is a reflection of the way we treat each other. The cruelty is systematic and irreducible. And there's a human cost hidden amongst the choice cuts and blue ribbon steaks. The factory workers and industrial slaughterhouses face work conditions that directly inspired classics like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This hunger not only eats away at ourselves, but at our world. Right now in Brazil, the Amazon rainforest is being burnt away so farmers can increase cattle yields for our meat. Living right with the earth, having a just society where we don't treat each other like resources, means we need a society where we don't treat animals like resources. It's up for us to find a better way. And you know what? Now that you've stopped in, I think I might have found one. You ever see that old Sweeney Todd movie? Uh, Never mind, it really wasn't that good to begin with, you don't need to worry about it. But you shouldn't leave so soon. I think you'll find your experience here to be very... rare. 
thanks so much, Ash, for your support and contribution. Now, everybody, go listen to his podcast right yes. now. Right it now, is fantastic. <laughs> I really enjoy the horror vanguard as well. So, And so, on to our next film. We are going to talk about the 1977 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What was true? most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Kelly, what is your story with this film? Yes. So, the fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is in my top ten horror movies of all time, and I love it. I saw it many, many moons ago, and uh, I revisit it every number of years. Uh, it's it's a grim, dark one, which I love. Uh, doesn't make for an easy watch. It's definitely a bit of a mood movie. Um, it's hugely iconic. And I just have always loved it. And for myself, I have a little interesting story with this one. So I had never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And back in university, there was a time when like remakes were the huge thing, which they still are now. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake came out. And my friends all really wanted to see it. And I was like, okay, not really knowing what I was getting into. <laughs> and they took me to go see it in theaters. I lasted 20 minutes. I remember <laughs> having my, like hiding in a hoodie. I had my eyes cut. I was plugging my ears. I couldn't even make it. Like the, the scene after the woman pulls like a gun out of her vagina and shoots herself in the head. I was like, done. And I left. This is not a Jess movie. <laughs> I know, right? Not but even I had saw the remake, so I'm like, I'm like, done. I'm out. Like I walked out of the, th the theater. People laughed at me. I don't fucking care. I was like, I'm out. So I stayed away from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because in my mind, I thought the original was just as brutal but even worse than the remake which is really interesting because a lot of people think that mm -hmm. and it wasn't until a couple years ago when i started my uh, podcast the dark spectrum and we did the texas chainsaw massacre for one of those for one of our episodes and i watched it and i loved it because a 
not as uh, brutal. Like, it's brutal in its own way, but it's not as gory as I thought it was going to be. And it definitely, I had definitely misconceptions about that film right away. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. like Kelly said, it's one of those films that you need to be in the mood to watch. I think I've pretty much have watched it, like, four times over the last year just because it's also like one of those films that when I'm talking to people who are new to horror or they want to watch a horror movie and I'm like oh you should watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre like this happened with my brother he was just like no I don't want to watch that that's going to terrify me I'm like no no no, it's actually not as uh, scary as you think scary in certain ways but it's not gory like you think it is Mm -hmm. and it's a really interesting film and I got him to watch it and he actually felt really like he enjoyed it as well he's like that is dark but so I think it's a definitely one of those films that has a bigger like there's like a le- like a legend to it like the people feel Completely. that it's m- much more that it's like much more gory much more terrifying than it actually is as a film. Yeah, no, I, I get I get what you're saying. There's a lot of the violence is implied. There's yeah. a lot of stuff in this movie that is implied and off screen. Yeah. Which you know we've talked about that before, but sometimes that is more horrifying to some people because. You know, it just gets your imagination going, and that can be pretty terrifying for some people. So, yes, it's, I think it's probably one of the best horror movies of all time. It's pretty fantastic. So, I guess that's going to lead me into my likes. And I did say it's in my top 10 horror films of all time. It is. Number one is the fucking cinematography in that movie, is bloody amazing. It is beautifully done. That shot when the girl is sitting on the swing and it comes from underneath. Yeah. And as she gets closer to closer to the house and the house gets, you know, bigger and bigger in the frame, I it's just such a beautifully done film. It's a gross, ugly film. You know what I mean? But it's yep. so beautifully done. I love the premise of it. I'm a huge fan of backwoods horror. I love the incestuous hillbillies. I love <laughs> just like you don't know what's gonna be lurking in the woods. And it could be supernatural, it could be fucking Blair Witch, it could be hillbillies, it could be, hillbilly is such a negative term, that's terrible. You know, just people that are from the woods, and <laughs> I'm just really into that. I love the iconic character of Leatherface. He's a really interesting character, and you know, looking at both these movies, there's so much that you could dissect out of it. Leatherface, the character itself, you could. Um, oh god, yes. Which, you know, we're not necessarily going to do. Uh, But there's so much to talk about, especially in the Texas Chainsaw, and a lot of people have done a lot of research on this movie, and it's incredible. I find the movie very unsettling, and it's just so beautifully done, and I love that it is now, now that I can really, now that I've rewatched it, it's been a number of years, but now I can really see how unapologetically anti-meat this movie is, and it's just like upped my absolute love and adoration for it. Yes, and I I will I am echoing everything that you pretty much have said, the aesthetics of the film, the story, the messaging, the camera shots, like you said that scene with uh with the woman from the swing mm-hmm. that's actually always talked about in film studies and that, that one that one scene and how mm. that was done. The acting because you actually kind of like you really get into the film and that's what I mean like while it's not gory and like in in a lot of the great 
gory violence is implied, you actually feel like the terror that those uh, teenagers are feeling when things start happening, mm -hmm. um, especially uh, for Sally. And when I definitely saw the messaging of the go like the the vegetarian and the whole idea of animal rights, like it's just it's just a film that has like you said so many layers to it. And that's why it was so hard for this uh, podcast episode not to go down the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, rabbit hole. Because there's just... <laughs> I know, right? So oh, much God. out there that people are writing about. And, like, we're trying to be very specific and just focus on the, the cannibalism uh, element of it. But there's just, like, the whole idea between the difference between, like, the whole, you know, the civilized and uncivilized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. it, like, families and the whole family dynamics and, you know... The patriarchy and masculinity mm -hmm. and it's just like everything yeah <laughs> i know there's an incredible amount this movie is amazing so that being said do you dislike anything about it i don't there's nothing i dislike about this film i i really enjoy it it's actually the only thing i dislike and this is actually because i just realized this in doing my research that there's a bunch of fucking sequels like i know <laughs> there's so many there's so I, many in this franchise I know that I knew about the second one because mm -hmm. so I know that it came out as a parody of the first one because everyone thought that the first one was going to be like so bloody and gory. And so finally Cooper's like, you want that? Fine, I'll give it to you. And he made like a parody of the first one. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that there was a third one or a fourth one or a fifth yep. one or even a sixth one. I was There's like many many iterations what <laughs> so that's what i yeah. don't like <laughs> there's a franchise of the texas chainsaw massacre i was like what? i know <laughs> it's some of the movies have merit to them uh but i think personally in this quote-unquote franchise the original is a hundred percent the best yes i agree uh dislikes maybe franklin but like everybody dislikes him he's whiny he's annoying <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like overall, generally speaking, I do not dislike anything about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What I like about before you get into that, because I didn't want to talk about it earlier, but Franklin, because I had one article I found had a huge discussion about how Franklin is that transgression blur between the civilized and the uncivilized. Mm. And he's really the link between the Sawyer family and the teenagers because he, he straddles that element of being both a savage but also being of the urban feel of things. And I was like, okay, now I can see where Franklin's role kind of comes in, oh, with, boy. in the film. That would be interesting <laughs> to read. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Franklin, hopefully you have some kind of merit in this movie. Oh, boy. <sighs> so next we're going to look into humans as meat and humans are animals. So I read this really wonderful article and it's called Having an Old Friend for Dinner, like cannibalism in, in film. First, I'm going to talk about reification. And Axel Honneth, who wrote Reification, A New Look at an Old Idea. So reification, the definition, is a type of human behavior that violates moral or ethical principles by not treating other subjects in accordance with their characteristics as human beings, but instead as numb and lifeless objects. We see them as things or as commodities. And... The separation of the thing that's being objectified, whether, you know, we're talking about cannibalism or everyday human life, so humans or non-humans, this allows for easier consumption of them. So if a person, you know, wants to see another person and they just kind of objectify them, there's like, yep, this is easier for me to swallow. Ha ha. <laughs> um, and then it makes eating animals easier. We call animals meat instead of who they actually are. 
They're cows, they're pigs, they're chickens, they're sheep. They're not beef, pork chops, bacon. They are individuals and they are animals. So reification requires not just a redefinition of the proposed victim of whatever species, but an active acquiescence in forgetting that the victim ever was anything more than meat. So next we'll talk about alterity, the creation of otherness, which we've talked about even before in this podcast. So, you know, our, the identity or someone's identity is formed in contrast to another identity. So as humans, we've decided who we can and cannot eat. That's dependent upon the species. Humans, obviously, we cannot eat. God forbid. We do not eat people. That is barbaric and very taboo. In North America, we do not eat dogs and cats. But in other areas of the world, they have no problems eating dogs and cats. Korea, for example. They're pets. They're not food. There's food animals. I hate that mm. people call cows and pigs and chickens food animals. They're just animals. They're just animals. We have decided that they are food. The world did not. Nature did not. So we think it's okay to objectify one, but not the other. And then we see cultures who do choose to eat humans or cats as barbaric. How dare they? Mm-hmm. How could they do that? Maggie Kilgore, who wrote The Function of Cannibalism at the Present Time, says that, and this kind of go back, goes back to that hierarchy of needs that Jessica talked about, that food is a basic human need. It also is a complex cultural symbol. We often use it to define our differences with other cultures, like culturally, socially, sexually. We see cannibalism as absolutely perverse, and attacks on cannibals are okay. They're okay. Ontology is the philosophical study of being. Humans see ourselves as ontologically different than animals. We are non-animals. We are above animals. Again, we forget about our own animality. We forget that we are animals ourselves. We say humans and then animals. And I even catch myself doing this. I'm like, well, I love animals and then forget, quote unquote, I forget that humans are animals or especially my early animal rights days, it was always for a very long period, many, many years, I said non-human animals because I understand that there is a difference between other animals and humans. But when we create that huge gap, I think that's where we easily find ourselves just putting ourselves above them and forgetting that we're just sentient creatures just like them. So for cannibalism, it closes that gap There's this, because we created that great divide between us and all the other animals, and, you know, cannibalism makes us uncomfortable because other people are seeing us as meat, and we are more than that. Of course humans are more than that. We are better than that. Are we? Really? And we're even disgusted when other species cannibalize each other. And sometimes they do that out of survival. Sometimes they do that for whatever reason they're going to do that. But we're like, whoa. I remember walking down the street of Toronto and looked over and there was a rat eating another rat. We're like, what is happening here? Because that's that's not quote unquote normal behavior for them. But whatever he need, he felt, you know, he or she felt the need to do that. I'm sure it was justified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So closing this gap invites ridicule. And as vegans, we have all experienced this ridicule at one time or another because animals are just animals. And why do you care about them so much? It's a topic very deeply close to me and 
all the time do I feel that it gets very, very upsetting that people feel that way about them. I remember when King Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong, came into theaters. I went to see it with my dad. I spent the last 20 minutes of that movie bawling my eyes out because they take Kong out of his natural habitat, put him in captivity, and show him off to the world. And then he escapes because he wants to live his own life as an individual animal, and they kill him. And I bawled. And I remember in that movie, there's, you know, the, the the female character, I forget her name, but she's very upset because she grew attached and was very sympathetic to the plight of Kong. And you hear somebody say, we're like, why are you all upset? It's just an animal. And I'm crying. And I go home and my mom says to me, she's like, why are you so upset? Like, it's just a movie. It's not just a movie because that shit happens in real life. And then there's, that's problematic right there. They don't think that that is real life, but it is. Not that we're talking about animals and entertainment, but it's seeing animals for who they are and not what we necessarily perceive them to be. There's a woman named Rachel Hertz who wrote a book called That's Disgusting. And she said, meat raises our fears of our own quote unquote livingness, which is why we neatly package animals into ways that we can't distinguish the true origins of what we are eating, because that would make us uncomfortable. If there were human body parts packaged in a way that animals are, I'm sure we would eat them because, you know, you don't really know who that was and we don't really care. But as long as it's in a package that we can't really, you know, recognize, we're pretty comfortable with that because we're uncomfortable with the reality of it. So why are you doing it in the first place is what mm-hmm. I always want to ask. Um, and she said that in doing this, we can, quote unquote, maintain a barrier between our civilized humanity and the wildness of beasts. So when we came to talk about the themes that we wanted to do for the podcast and cannibalism, vegetarianism was a theme that we really want to jump on to. Um, basically, A, as we discussed much earlier in the podcast, we were inspired by the, the film Raw. We came into discussion about this theme in horror. In reading Don Kelly's article on Raw that was posted on the Horror Homeroom website and in their podcast, they titled Raw, in brackets, meat, are we our bodies, was in part an inspiration for this podcast episode and particularly in the underlying message of animal rights, cannibalism, and horror. We see this in the character of Justine, who is a vegetarian and who comes from a family of vegetarians and she wants to and vets and she goes to vet school with the desire to help animals and she assumes that everyone who is there is, or shares the same values as her and what Keely highlights in her article how the film objectifies animals uh, by the the camera angles by the shots and that literally animals are literally reduced to meat and the first year veterinary students are forced to eat animal meat so the rabbit livers and they're being drenched in pig's blood And this hazing sees the students being treated very similar to animals in cages when they're doing their testing, when they're being herded in their hazing rituals, and then they're also being tortured by their upperclassmen. Justine's classmates are repelled by her belief in the equality between humans and animals. And we see this in the cafeteria scene where there's this debate among her peers over the difference between a raped woman and a raped monkey, where Justine feels very strongly that there is no difference between um, an animal that is raped and and a woman who is raped because they both feel pain. And then she asks the question, doesn't everyone share this belief? Like, why are we becoming veterinarians? Because, and no one can answer that. We see in the film Justine's craving for meat as not confined to animals but to humans as well so 
that cannibalism bridging gaps as Kelly was discussing and that at the end of the day whether a human or an animal we are all blood and flesh and how are our bodies any different from that of animals how are our rights different from that of animals that because and that's only because we make cannibalism taboo but not eating other species is accepted so what really makes us different from animals Food is a part of our everyday life, and people are consistently making moral, ethical decisions based on how we eat. And this is the life of a vegan. This is the life of a vegetarian. We're, every choice that we make is we're making an ethical decision based on our thoughts, our views. And some for people, it's also this, this idea of eating organically or free range, that this can be a scene of method of political activism and recognizing that nature is finite. However, our modern monoculture and the factory farming they justified their actions in a, in a need to feed the world mentality and that this is the only way to get food to urban areas and that in truth they're largely driven by an economic production. More and more information is coming about how damaging these industries are to our human health, the environment, and how unethical these practices are. This whole monoculture, this whole factory farming, but that what they end up doing is that they use marketing money and they strategies to pull the wool over the consumer's eyes. You see it largely now, especially this day and age, all those ads for dairy farmers of Canada and all the whole idea of the meat industry attacking plant-based meat as you cannot use the term meat. They're using all their money to try and you know fool the consumer and say and you know try to hide their unethical practices. But food can be seen as a source of reinforcing our cultural boundaries and values in our systems, and that what is edible and inedible defines different cultures and subcultures, and that food is not merely a source of sustenance, but that of identity building. So the whole idea that cannibalism is ta taboo is nearly universal because it reinforces and comforts humans as being superior to the rest of the natural world, that our assertion over all other species is our dominance. And makes us feel more comfortable in where we stand in the human in in the world of our what they call it the um the circle of life or whatever the top of the period where we were at the top of the food chain however our modern relationship with animals has changed we see them like we not me and kelly but typically in society we see our animals primarily as objects they're just meat and it's only and this is seen time and time again in suburban and urban households when you're interacting with non-human animals as meat because you eat them and animals and body in our in name and body are made absent as animals in our mind so i'm trying like if you understand so that where people like you see like they're always saying like what's the difference between a cat and a cow right or a dog and a cow right when you eat when you don't eat but then we change their name so a cow is now beef so we've taken away that name of that animal melanie joy in her, in her book why we love dogs eat pigs and wear cow she talks about the random assignment of names and cultural values to certain objects can obscure the essential similarities between them leading to irrational behavior and involuntary physical responses so she talks about this idea so you're invited to uh, have a meal at a home and you find out that as you're eating you're thinking that you're eating pork when really you're eating dog and the instant and the instant reaction to people is revulsion you can't eat a dog that's disgusting but at the same time too it's like they but before they knew they were eating a dog they were all like this is amazing this meal's so delicious how did you you know how did you make this sauce that you know put on top of it but what this does it, it identifies a huge logical disconnect that allows us to question the right of human beings to kill and consume non-human animals it's a huge disconnect and that's a great a great point to bring up and i think that would be the same as if they're 
if somebody told them it was human. You yeah, know? Right? Does this exactly. like, all of a sudden make it not tasty and delicious? No. But, and then, like, we have this psychological, emotional response to it. And we're like, oh, no, no, no. No, I can't eat this. This is no longer delicious. Yeah. Nobody's like, not saying that meat is delicious. I'm sure it is. I remember a long time ago. But that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the whole point of all of this. Yeah. So now we're going to look at talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the ideas that are presented in this film. So, like I said earlier in the film, no one ever forgets the first time they see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is the poster <laughs> child for obscene publications, but it's also listed as a dark work of art. It was banned in Britain, and it was banned in several other European countries when it first came out. But it is a remarkably bloodless film, and is not as graphically violent as people seem to place upon the film. The film assaults the view with sweaty death and decay, because we're introduced to grave robbing, mutilation, the passing of slaughterhouses, the hot Texas summer, like, ugh, all of it. And in the in the film, each member of the Sawyer family, they all have a specific role. We have the hitchhiker, who is the scavenger, and he helps to find potential food and victims. We have Leatherface, who is the killer slash uh, matriarchal figure. We have the older man, who is believed to be the cook, who is the breadwinner, um, who works at the gas station. And then you have the grandfather, who is the aging patriarch. When I first saw this film, to me, a huge message was the animal rights and the idea of food and cannibalism were very strong and apparent to me. And this goes from the way they talk about slaughterhouses to how we see the teenagers being killed throughout the film, very similar to that of animals in slaughterhouses and in factory farms. And we also see, like, to me, what really gets to me is the images of Sally's eyes when she's being tormented at the family dinner. And it's very reminiscent to the fear that uh, a cow feels or when they're being they're being tread down into the, the line of killings. It really brought me back to those, uh, watching those videos very early on in my, uh, vegan, in my vegan education and how upsetting that is, but it was very reminiscent of that. It really the, was. Sorry, I was going to say, yeah, really, I felt the same way, and I don't remember really feeling that way, you know, in the past uh, watches of the movie, but this time around, because I also have seen and watched many, many videos of, of animals in factory farms, slaughterhouses, and stuff like that. And that was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, her, like that extreme close-up of her eye, and all I could see was a cow's eye, yes. and it was just deeply, deeply unsettling and disturbing to me. Very upsetting. So one of the articles that I looked at was... Uh, uh, they look at what they call it food waste studies. So it's the studies of extended network activities in film that surround looking at this idea of studying how food is used in films or portraying messages in films. So the, the idea of procurement, the preservation, preparation, presentation, performance, and the consumption of food and what this means in a film. And what we see are these uh, food behaviors in films or in cultures offer insight into people's different beliefs, their aesthetics, the economics, and the politics of a social group. So in cannibal narratives, we see them a lot, particularly in uh, colonist contexts, but there are a lot of times they're related to issues of identity and power. And there's a clear boundary between what is barbaric, good, and evil, and this idea of the Westerners, uh, they conquer the indigenous people, do their acts of idolatry, and cannibalism is seen as savages and barbaric. So the term cannibal implies savagery, blasphemous behavior surrounding the conception of human flesh and used to demonize the group and demonize the group and annihilate them. 
So when we're watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you're studying the way that they procure the food, the hitcher, who is the one who you know marks the van for when they're going to, you know, because eventually end up at this gas station and we know that the hitcher has been in uh, contact with these people. The whole idea of preservation and uh, preparation is seen with uh, Leatherface and how he, you know, uh, a murders and kills the teenagers as they make it way into his into his slaughterhouse, which literally the home is mm-hmm. the slaughterhouse. And then mm-hmm. he in his preparation by keeping um, I can't remember her name, but putting her in the freezer and that that cruelty of that. Then the, also like that the presentation and the performance, like right the cook, he sells the product of his of the work of his two sons in his gas station to the rest of the people who come along. Mm-hmm. So that's presentation sure and yeah, the presentation <laughs> and the performance of it, right? The you know the the barbecue. Come have some of this barbecue. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Right, and then we also see the consumption. So the uh, interesting enough, the only person we see actually eat the barbecue is Franklin. What's really interesting about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that in the first film, the cannibals are the working poor and their lifestyle, and this is something that has been forced upon them because of industrialization because they are forced out of being able to sustain their own living because farming or slaughterhouses have now become industrialized and so for them to be able to survive they need to find another means to make a living Mm -hmm. and that just happens to be killing people and eating them and also selling that meat to uh, travelers or tourists that are coming through getting getting gas yeah well, they're kind of doing what they know, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Cannibalism is a means of necessity that is forced upon them by the American economy. So one of the reasons why earlier on I dislike the fact that there are so many sequels to this film is that this article actually addressed a couple of the other films in the terms of how cannibalism um, grows throughout the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how it's seen in different ways. And so where they talk about the first film, it is uh, something that is faced, forced upon the poor lower class. They are talking about how in the third film, the, the Sawyers are now a middle class family. And then because they've embraced a technology that forced them out of work earlier in life, it now uses, they use that technology to fully embrace cannibalism and make it more natural for the family and make their work easier for them and less messy. And then in the sixth film, so, so in the third film, their cannibalism is no longer forced upon them, it's done by choice. And then by the sixth film, apparently cannibalism is more seen as a means of militarism, that it's their way of protecting the family and those they considered other outside of the family and part of their whole ability of righteous power. So, which is really interesting too, because we see this both in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the earlier film and also in The Hills Have Eyes, this whole idea of the other, that Mm -hmm. they have marked those outside of their family as food as sustenance they are not part of their inner circle so they distance themselves they made that gap if you are not in the family you are other you are food to us that is it exactly and we do the same to animals as we have talked about yes so there's definitely some similarities between texas chainsaw massacre and hills have eyes all the cannibalism is implied we don't actually see these families eat people but their implication is that they do you know, which makes some interesting movies to, to look at because we could have gone to the all those classic, a lot of the Italian horror films of cannibalism. It ends up being a lot of like tribal, like the Green Inferno. You know what I mean? That could have been an easy choice, but 
But in both families, turn to cannibalism somewhat for survival, essentially. You know, probably a Texas Chainsaw family, the Sawyers, could have done something else. They could have. But, you know, it's very, very rural. Why not use the skills that they have? Uh, Both show their brutality towards humans and treating nothing more than like their next meal and not like sentient beings that humans are. Texas Chainsaw, again, you know, the teenagers and the viewers, we see this family as quite barbaric, almost inhuman. They're savages. The cannibalism makes them, you're right, the other, and we cannot relate to them whatsoever. Again, but the the actions that they're doing is very reminiscent of what we do to other animals. We house them in tiny places where they can't move around properly. They're treated as mere meat and not as sentient beings with inherent value. They're forcibly inseminated. They're put into crowded trucks to be transferred in a terrifying way to the slaughterhouses where, if they're lucky, they'll be killed instantly, then dismembered. Definitely just like the good old Texas Chainsaw house. Yeah, I liked the the analogy of that the house is now the new slaughterhouse. I yeah. thought that was brilliant. Because it's, it's so right. And even if you look at that very first death, which is Kurt, he comes, yep. Leatherface just opens that sliding door, brilliant, yep. and just hits him over the head with a sledgehammer to the skull, which is just like how yep. they used to kill animals. Yep. Not always very efficient. And when you saw his body, like, twitch and move about, yes, it's more yes. of, like, a stunning that happens. And again, seeing enough videos of dead, like, dying and dead animals, that was also very reminiscent of that, which made it very unsettling, but also very accurate. Yeah. And I liked a lot of the, accu- the accuracy of this movie. And, you know, we have Sally in the beginning, who ends up being our final girl, who chimes in, like, no, I like meat, please change the subject. Showing that people don't want to know about where their food's coming from or they'd feel upset and guilty. But really, what is that saying about you then? If your comfort level is very low when it comes to what you're eating, then I think it's something to to think upon, at least. So Horror Homeroom had another really great article that I came across. It's called Seeing and Slaughtering in Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think this was also done by Dawn Keatley. But she was, whoever it was, they were saying that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is more more than a film about meat. It's a film about the politics of seeing and more importantly, not seeing that we know is crucial to the meat industry. In Especially in the beginning of the movie, we kind of go back and forth, right? They're talking about the factory farms and we are like having shots of the actual farm near them. Kids in the van, back to the terrified, upset animals in the, in the factory farms because you're kind of going back and forth as they're talking about it. Um, and then so in that sequence... Uh, she was saying that defines the politics of sight in relation to the meat industry. So the meat industry really depends highly upon us not seeing. Not seeing what goes goes on in slaughterhouses to the animals, to the workers, because there's a whole aspect yes. of human right issues with, yes. re- in, with regards to the meat industry. And we don't see what actually goes on inside of them. Because if we did, we would be horrified and not want to eat them. Of course, that it would be a natural honest human reaction to it but the texas chainsaw massacre makes us see it discards this blurred non-view of those you know barely noticeable cattle in the distance that they can see from the highway and makes them actually see the cows themselves and eventually sally ends up feeling like an animal in a factory farm in a slaughterhouse she feels like one we talked about the eyeball scene at dinner 
it ends up, what's really amazing about the movie is that it kind of brings us where it like blurs the lines of humans as meat, animals at meat, and is it really all that different? And they kind of, it, it so brilliantly mishmashes it together to make you really think about what's going on in front of you. So what's really interesting uh, further in this film too is that this film is a vision of literally America and they like to say devouring itself. So the home is the slaughterhouse and the consumers are coming into it to be consumed. So another form of cannibalism. So in the 1970s, it was a very challenging time for American way of life. We had the end of the Vietnam War. We had the loss of confidence in the government due to the Watergate scandal, oil crisis, stock market crash, recession. All of this is represented in the Chainsaw Massacre. And that the consuming nature of capitalism leads to a group of teens to become consumed by cannibals whose skills were made redundant because of the need of tech, uh, the need to continue technological advancement for con- for convenience and excess. The family themselves, the Sawyers, they have become disenfranchised, as we discussed earlier, and they're now depressed and they're pushed to the fringes of society, but only ab- only able to return to society as monstrous cannibals. And we see this idea of the transgression of boundaries between humans and animals becoming a taboo issue. Leatherface himself, he is the transgressive other. His face is hidden by human skin. We consider himself cross-dressing because there's this point where there's one scene where the, the family's coming back for dinner time and Leatherface is now wearing human another face on his face, done up in makeup, and he's in a dress, so we're thinking matriarchal other. But then he also has this whole animalistic intent on murder. He's like the savage who has these lack of emotions and compassion, and he just simply slaughters his victims without any fuss, no elaboration. He treats them like cattle. And his predatory nature is efficient because he is efficiently killing and prepping his prey for a meal. It was interesting because how in this article they like to say like, you know, that Leatherface, like an animal, doesn't recognize taboos. And he just enacts cruelty on his victims. But the whole idea of cruelty is man-made idea. I, I can't... Mm-hmm. I don't really see an animal themselves being cruel, but that's where t- they have a tendency to take cannibalism and they say, oh, well, a cannibal is like an animal because they're cruel and they just feast on the victims and they have no moral in- intensity where you're like, well, wait a second, take out the idea that a cannibal is an animal because that's just doesn't, that's not, that's not the same thing. No, but, definitely not. Yeah. But they're, they're saying that, but they tend to have a tendency to say, oh, there's lacks to be this, this lack of boundaries. Hmm. The film is that, and like I said, bringing it back to this idea of America devouring itself. The home is a slaughterhouse. You know, the people in the home have to kill to make a living. There is this blurred line between treating, between what's the difference between eating an animal and eating a human. There is no difference. The consumers are literally being con- being consumed, and the camels themselves are literally are the ones who are cannibalizing. Because it's interesting, because they, like I said, they go back to they sell this meat at the gas station, this barbecue. Franklin eats it. They are the, the, the in the way they represent the the capitalist society that's being cannibalistic in the sense that they, you know, come from an urban land, and you know that monoculture and the whole idea of the farming agriculture farming industry is sustaining those urbanizations to feed the large masses, but then as they're driving, they don't realize that this barbecue that they're eating is that of the human, so they themselves are the cannibals but the cannibal family is the one that kills them to feed others. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like yep, yep. vicious circle that yep. no matter what, you are a cannibal because you are eating that of a sentient being. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Oh, boy. So I guess one of the last things is just kind of going back to how Toby Hooper 
put together this movie and all these images and sounds together because you see... So at one point when Kurt is being sliced open like and killed with the the chainsaw, I believe it was Kurt, sorry if that's wrong, but Hooper also inserts the audio of a squealing pig. Mm. So again, we're blurring our lines. Now we need, now we're kind of forced to listen to what a pig sounds like before we end up eating it, but at the same time we're seeing somebody being killed. And it can make, like it just kind of puts that into you know, some context and puts it into a different perspective, which makes it a bit more difficult to, for the viewer to view human life as more important than animals for the rest of the film. Like it's, it's, we kind of, it's early on in the movie where he's already starting to blur those lines. They, he manipulates us and prevents the audiences from being able to kind of distinguish the, the violence against the animals from the violence against the humans. Cause it's kind of, all together, we have in their house, there's like a chicken in a cage. I'm sure eventually is going to be killed and eaten. Um, there's that whole room of just like murder. There's like bones everywhere in the same room that the chicken is in. Um, you know, he takes that girl and puts her right up on a meat hook. Like the process is just so very similar. So you can't help but not think about the parallels between what they're doing and what we pay people to do for us which I think was just so brilliantly and wonderfully done. And uh, I think it forces us to, to think about all those different things. So now we're going to get into our spinster's final thoughts. So for me, watching, like I said, watching the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time and seeing his messaging about the impact of the industrialization of the animal agriculture and the on-point comparisons of how slaughtering humans like, like animals is, a, is barbaric, it really hit home to me the vegetarian messaging. I know that there's so many other themes where it comes to, you know, industrialization, the the whole forcing out of uh, working class people to have no jobs, recession. Yeah, there's so much more. But to me, at the end of the day, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it is a movie about uh, vegetarianism, is about animal rights, and is about trying to close that gap between the difference between humans and animals. And that at the end of the day, no matter what you're eating, you're causing pain and suffering to another sentient species. And that's how I feel when it comes to this film. And I feel that animal rights in horror is still an area that it is worth investigating and worth talking about. And like I said, the whole inspiration for this this month on cannibalism and horror and uh, animal rights became because of the film Raw, because I was so impacted by that film. And I was actually really nervous to watch it because I was like, I don't know, I didn't really want to watch this film about, you know, vet school and someone, you know, turning to eating uh, an cannibals. That's like, you know, and hearing the things about people throwing up in their seats at when they saw that the film and stuff like that. And I was like, mm -hmm. ah, no, thank you. But then I watched it and I was deeply moved by this film and the whole debate that Justine has in the cafeteria. That is me. I related to that scene so hard because I was like, yes, there is no difference. What people do to animals and what people do to humans is horrible and there's no difference to that. And that we, and, we, and the fact that we always say that there's a difference is problematic to me, 100%. And sometimes I, when I come across, and that's sometimes why I don't find myself very, try not to be confrontational with people because I can get very heated and sometimes I can get a little rude. And so I have to kind of step back because I just don't see any difference between someone eating a hamburger and someone eating a, a, like a baby's foot. I don't know, <laughs> sorry. Like <laughs> to me, it's, 
it's wrong. Like, so for me, also talking, and this is where I get into this idea is that sometimes I feel like my being a vegan is still a taboo subject. I know that it's becoming more and more accepted and we have so many like in the last like four years I believe there's been so many who strives to for getting like you know plant-based meat and like big restaurants like uh, Tim Hortons and A&W you know the Beyond Meat Burger is doing huge things right there the whole thing like the reading the article about KFC having their plant-based chicken like sell it within five hours that's insane that's amazing that's incredible but sometimes I still feel like me being a vegan is just as being as taboo as being a cannibal because I feel like you know whenever I tell someone I'm vegan and I'm outcasted by social situations I'm either grilled or mocked about my lifestyle choice and I feel like I always have to constantly defend myself or I have to hold myself back in fear of being preachy or being a militant vegan or even if I see a movie that has just a strong vegetarian message or an idea about animal rights and I point that out in a film to some of the people they get like they roll their eyes at me like yeah well of course you would see that I, I, I try I try my hardest to be educational. One of the big things about me, you know, animal rights and being vegan is that I try to educate people through food by cooking delicious meals. And But at times, you know, sometimes we have to have these discussions where like at the end of the day, when someone is being rude and they talk to me like, oh, I'm really enjoying this burger or everything with the tastes amazing with bacon or I could never give up cheese. I always have to find myself holding back from sarcastic saying like, yes, enjoy that corpse like it's no different from eating a human foot like why are you all of a sudden being like oh you eat like eating a burger that's made out of people that's disgusting or just like well it's no different than eating the cow that you're just eating or that moldy pus that you're pus that you're ingesting is not appealing at all and like i said there is no difference between a cow a dog or a child like at the end of the day when it comes to food so <laughs> there's me getting a little confrontational. I and I just feel like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even the Hills Have Eyes, because remember in that film, their main prey, the thing that they were going for was the baby because they wanted that the flesh of that of that newborn baby. Mm-hmm. So, How could we forget? Yeah. <laughs> for me, I thought it was time to do another thought provoking episode and you know, something to be pondered, as this subject is really important to us. And I think one of the biggest uh, previous episodes that is, you know, a thought-provoking important one was the Rape Revenge episode. So, you know, we're kind of going into my taboo terrors territory of talking about a taboo subject, but we're definitely still going to do that and have these, you know, a little bit more serious thought-provoking episodes, and I think it's important to do that. So Toby Hooper gave up eating meat during the filming of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Guillermo del Toro spent a while as a vegetarian after seeing the film. Uh, Toby Hooper said that the main important theme of Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the chain of life and killing of sentient beings, which could mean humans, non-humans, whatever. But that was the main important theme that he thought when he created that movie. There's something to be said to comparing the deaths of all animals, human and not, to kind of put things into perspective for us, and discussing the aspects of human behavior, dissecting it, if you will, can reveal some interesting and important things, not only about ourselves as a species, you know, but us as individuals. An article that I read, The Vegetarian Underpinnings of Cannibalism in Film, said about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
you know, it exposes the fundamental hypocrisies of a society that glorifies meat eating, but condemns cannibalism to ponder what our casual acceptance of killing animals suggests about the human psyche. In his experience at working at an undercover slaughterhouse, a gentleman named Timothy Patriot, Patriot, I'm sorry, he wrote every 12 seconds, industrialized slaughter and the politics of sight which is very relate, very much related to the Horror Homeroom article on slaughterhouses and seeing that I referenced earlier. He argues that the slaughterhouse depends on the mechanism of distance and concealment. It depends on our eating its products while never seeing or knowing where exactly they come from. It depends, in other words, on remaining hidden. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre tells us exactly the same thing, that the act of slaughtering, whether of animals or humans, goes on behind closed doors, operates in an out-of-the-way and impossible-to-see spaces, and the film makes those spaces of slaughter, of both animals and humans, disconcertingly visible. Making the invisible visible may cause discomfort, panic, even madness that we saw in Sally, but it's nonetheless something we should make ourselves see. We talk about there not being any difference between humans and animals. I understand that there are differences, When it comes down to it, those differences, are they important or better? Are we better, the differences between humans and animals? That's the question that I'm leaving for you, listeners. So that ends our episode on cannibalism and horror. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for intro-outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for his work on all, all of our promotional materials. Also to all of you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com Facebook, Spinsters of Horror We're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters and Instagram at Spinsters of Horror As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify and any other podcasting app you listen to us on And a reminder that we have merch Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop We also have a donation button that is located on the main page if you'd like to contribute Next month, we go international with our first look into Italian horror The movies up for discussion are Dario Gento's Opera and Michele Suave's Stage Fright Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.